0: You are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, January 11th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Craig Johnson Plumbing, serving Nevada and Placer County since 2004. Now partnered with Clearwater and Filtration, providing water testing services, treatment recommendations, home filtration system design, and existing equipment evaluation. Information at clearwaterandfiltration.com. And Beneficial Biologics, offering a full line of organic nutrients with commercial sales, support, and consultation. Founded in Humboldt County in 2010, distributed nationally, available locally at independent retail locations. Beneficialbiologics.com. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, we have this week's water news with hydrogeologist Steve Baker. We have today's national native news. In an interview with NPR, Republican Senator Ben Sasse of Nebraska said the U.S. Capitol was ransacked by a mob that was incited by the president of the United States. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. At 6:30 we bring you Wings, the women's international news gathering service, and at 7, Democracy Now with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather.
1: Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf is resigning, effective tonight. NPR's Brian Naylor reports Wolf will be replaced by the current head of FEMA. A senior DHS official tells NPR that Wolf's resignation is effective at 11 p.m. Eastern and that he'll be replaced by Pete Gaynor, the current head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Wolf has served as acting DHS secretary for some 14 months and had said recently that he would stay on for the remainder of President Trump's term in office, even though Trump had pulled his nomination to become permanent secretary. His resignation comes as Washington is ramping up security in advance. President-elect Biden's inauguration next week. He becomes the third cabinet secretary to resign his post following last week's storming of the U.S. Capitol by a mob of pro-Trump supporters. Brian Naylor, NPR News. After introducing an article of impeachment against President Trump on the House floor today, lawmakers will return tomorrow to vote on a measure calling for Vice President Mike Pence to remove Trump from office within 24 hours. If that doesn't occur, Democrats say impeachment proceedings against Trump for his role in Last week's violent insurrection at the Capitol will begin midweek. One-time impeachment manager in California, Congressman Adam Schiff, telling NPR getting Trump out is imperative.
2: He presents a, a real and present danger, as we saw on Wednesday. Uh, we don't want another uh, violent attack on the Capitol. We don't want other uh, uh, decisions by this president that threaten uh, the peaceful transition of power, and so within our power, we can impeach the president, and I believe we should.
1: Democrats in the House say while it's far from clear where the Senate will go along, it's important to send a message by voting to impeach the president. Democratic lawmakers are making a new push to end federal capital punishment. As NPR's Juana Summers reports, the party's putting focus on the issue as Democrats prepare to take unified control of Congress as well as the White House.
0: A proposal from Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, the incoming chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Massachusetts Representative Ayanna Presley would end capital punishment at the federal level. It also would require the resentencing of all federal inmates currently on death row. In an exclusive joint interview with NPR, Durbin noted one of the long-standing criticism of capital punishment in the United States, the history of racial disparities.
3: If we truly believe that all lives matter and black lives matter and brown lives matter and the lives of poor people matter, it is time for us to make sure that our system of justice reflects that.
0: President-elect Joe Biden has said that he wants to work with Congress to abolish the federal death penalty and would incentivize states to follow that example.
4: Juana Summers, NPR News.
1: After last week's gains, stocks took a hit to start the new trading week. The Dow was down 89 points. The Nasdaq fell 165 points today. This is NPR. President-elect Joe Biden has received his second dose of the coronavirus vaccine three weeks after the initial shot. He received the vaccination today at a hospital near his home in Delaware. Elected officials and influential public health figures have been getting vaccinated publicly, in part to show it's safe as the coronavirus pandemic worsens in the U.S. More than 375,000 people have now died from COVID-19 in the United States. Ford Motor Company says it's closing its plants in Brazil. NPR's Philip Reeves says it's part of an $11 billion restructuring program aimed at cutting costs.
3: Ford's activities in Brazil go back more than a
5: century. That includes an attempt in the late 1920s by founder Henry Ford to create Fordlandia, a Midwest-style city in the Amazon rainforest, where he planned to extract rubber for car parts. That project eventually failed. Now the automaker is closing three Brazilian production plants, two immediately. It'll keep its South American headquarters here. Ford says the decision's difficult, but necessary for a healthy and sustainable business. The pandemic has led to a huge drop in vehicle sales in the region and a sharp rise in unemployment. Ford's Brazil closures are expected to impact around 5,000 jobs. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Rio de
1: Automaker General Motors says as part of a $27 billion initiative to match or even surpass electric vehicle maker Tesla. Companies working with all the best startups on next-generation EV battery technology – to Investor Conference, GM's Executive Vice President for Global Product Development, Doug Park, said GM has also partnered with other automakers, including Honda, on electric vehicles. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News.
0: According to a Nevada County press release issued today, the new Penn Valley Branch Library will be opening on January 21st. According to Library Branch Manager Cindy Palowski. Community members will be able to virtually visit the new library on their social media site at www.facebook.com slash Nevada County Library. She also says that they look forward to a more widespread come-on-in opening when COVID restrictions are lifted, and they will have a grand opening event to show off the new space. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, tonight, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, skies will be mostly cloudy with a low around 39. On Tuesday, there's a 20% chance of showers after 10 a.m., otherwise cloudy skies during the day with a high near 53. On Tuesday night, there is also a 20% chance of showers in the foothills, otherwise mostly cloudy skies with a low around 43. In Sacramento tonight, Patchy, dense fog is expected after 10 p.m. with a low around 41. Tuesday, patchy, dense fog before 10 a.m., then cloudy skies with a high near 57. And Tuesday night in the Sacramento region will be mostly cloudy with a low around 45. In Truckee tonight, there will be increasing clouds with a low around 25. Tuesday will be mostly cloudy with a high near 43 and a low around 30 with mostly cloudy skies overnight. And tonight in Angels Camp, there will be increasing clouds with a low around 42. Tuesday will be cloudy with a high near 58 and mostly cloudy overnight with a low around
4: 44.
2: This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, welcome
5: to KVMR. Glad to be back.
2: Uh, I thought we were supposed to have a lot of rain last <laughs> week, but it was a dud. It really fell short. And the next week or so, there's barely any rain forecasted. Okay, it doesn't look good for drought conditions, but what is the outlook at this time for weather and rain.
5: The uh, California Department of Water Resources, they completed their first manual snow survey. And what they found was that we're at 93% of the average up in the northern areas of our state in the Sierras. It, that was that came from the El Dorado County location, right? But elsewhere, the Sierra snowpack is about half of the average uh, for, for this date. So yeah, we're not looking all that great, really. Not not looking that great at, our, at all. If you look at the reservoir levels, we're at about a little over half of Lake Oroville is full. Uh, Lake Shasta is about three-quarters full. And then, you know, as as water travels down the Sacramento-San Joaquin River, gets uh, diverted and it's sent down the St. Louis Reservoir, they are around 70%. It's actually 69% uh, filled. So uh, as everybody probably already knows, uh, before winter really kicks in, they try to empty out those those uh, reservoirs to a degree to accept uh, all the new water coming in. So part of the reasons for that. But we're not we're not filling things very very quickly. We still have several months to go. But the powers to be suggest that we better prepare now for the extended drought condition that seems to be showing its face. And this uh, is a statewide perspective. But you know, also it's it's. Uh, There's a view that the farmers have, too.
2: Okay, let's talk about farmers. Mm -hmm. Uh, What can they do to prepare for the upcoming year, which may be a drought year?
5: Yeah, yeah. You know, generally, farmers are really optimistic. Uh, They they are saying things like, you know, one good atmospheric river storm and we are good to go. And that's really true. One good atmospheric river storm that we tend to get. The Pineapple Express type of storm can bring a lot of rain to totally change the portfolio of water that we have up here. But, you know, they're doing things in a more practical, pragmatic way as well. Uh, Farmers are picking the crops now that they'll be growing. Uh, The ones that grow grow. Fairly well in in drought under drought conditions. They're prior, prioritizing their crops for water efficiency. They're doing a lot of experimenting on new irrigation methods. There, there are new methods coming about all the time, and they're even giving themselves the option of planting in a specific area of the farm if we receive a lot of water. But if we don't, they'll let it run go fallow. So they they have these strategies that they're working into their their plans. Then the, the restrictions that they're feeling, in the, certainly in the Central Valley area, on groundwater pumping in the valley are really um, uh, being felt. And their presence is can be displayed by looking at some of the water supply planning that's going on down there. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act... Is, uh, of 2016 says, hey, we cannot no any longer over pump our aquifers in the Central Valley and other areas of California. And so it's affecting water supply planning down in the farming areas. Now, the next allocation announcement, it'll be in February. So we'll just have to see and, and hope that we will be receiving a lot more rain and snow.
2: Well, what about the over pumping of groundwater in the Central Valley and other areas of our state. Um, How does that create the water shortages that we see?
5: It's the rate of pumping that we do these days compared to the rate of that water that initially filled the aquifer at the time that that aquifer was actually receiving percolated water. Okay. Now, Paul, most of the water that I'm talking about, certainly in the Central Valley area, It can be called fossil water. All right. It's really old water. It's uh, that water filled those aquifers way back in the day when the glacier still existed on the land surface. So we're talking about 10,000 years ago. That's how old some of that water is. And during that time, the percolation rates of water, you know, melting from ice to water and then going percolating into the ground. That was happening at a a huge rate, a very fast uh, rate today you look out there we're we're barely getting any any precipitation at times so our percolation rates are dramatically slower as compared to 10,000 years ago it's a different place so we have to be very careful uh what we actually When we pump more water out of the ground any given year than the amount of water percolating into those aquifers, then we're going to be losing water, and that's been an ongoing problem in the Central Valley and many other places in the state. Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, uh, Menso de Jong, he's a consultant working for the lab. He uses uh, gold as the analogy, saying that we we can't just continue to take gold out of the ground, right? Because it doesn't grow back. Well, the same is true for water that... uh, It actually came from glaciers way back in the day.
2: Okay. So you were talking about the age of water in the Central Valley, but how about up here in the foothills?
5: Very good question. Your well is penetrating. Okay. There's uh, wells of different depths here penetrating different geology. Now, I've analyzed wells in granitic aquifers and also metasedimentary rocks like Banner Mountain, you know, the lava flow. And what I have found is uh, there's a range between 14-year-old and 40-year-old water in the areas that I, I tested. And this means that the water took that long, 14 years or 40 years, to get into the aquifer. But after that, who knows how long that water has been traveling within that aquifer? So it's going to be older than those those numbers. the The takeaway when you when you realize that it's not one year, it's not you know in one or two years that this water gets replenished into the aquifer. It can take many years. Uh, the takeaway is to recognize that. Our water takes, can take a very long time to reach the aquifer, so we don't want to overpump that groundwater in our neighborhoods because it may not come back very, very quickly. And we all know what that feels like when you run out of water. It's not a very pleasant experience, and it can cost you a lot of money. So we need to be aware of the age of the water that we use, and then don't overpump. It's so important to do that, to not do that.
2: Steve, uh, thanks a lot. We'll really keep uh, in touch uh, about this story. This is a big one for our community. We will. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at baker at operationunite.co. <music>
6: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Congress of American Indians Administrative Board officers are urging those responsible for last week's violent events at the U.S. Capitol to be held accountable, including President Trump. In a statement Friday, NCAI President Fawn Sharp and executive board officers denounced the violence, saying the actions incited by President Trump and his enablers are rooted in systemic and acute racism and hate and represent direct attacks on our democracy. The statement goes on to say no one is above the law. Tribal leaders across the country also condemned the violence last week, and some stated they're on heightened alert including the Mescalero Apache Tribe in New Mexico and the Oglala Sioux Tribe in South Dakota to ensure safety of their communities. Vaccines for COVID-19 are starting to roll out to Indigenous communities across Canada. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the first shipments of the Moderna vaccine are on their way to First Nations in Manitoba. According
7: to Native organizations and the provincial government of Manitoba, the first doses went out late last week. Officials say there are already 5,300 doses allocated to First Nations, with another 5,300 coming by the end of February. David Monius is the chief of the Pimica Kamak First Nation. He addressed the reluctance that some people might have in taking the vaccine. My job is to bring the to bring the vaccine into my community for my people. And it's up to them to decide if they want to take it or not, and nobody's going to be forced. Another chief said officials have to prioritize where the vaccines would go first, such as vulnerable, isolated, or overcrowded communities. Some native leaders say the province's native communities have been under severe stress since the pandemic began. Many don't have the infrastructure or the health systems to properly cope with the pandemic. The first doses will go to elder care homes in the communities of Cross Lake, Norway House, Fisher River Cree Nation, and the Peguas First Nation. A recent report from the Pandemic Response Coordination Team said in Manitoba, 49% of active cases in the overall population are in native people. For National Native News, I'm Dan Carpentuck.
6: The Sakagan Chippewa community in Wisconsin has been vaccinating health care workers and vulnerable community members against COVID 19. WXPR's Katie Thorson reports.
4: The first people to get vaccinated against COVID 19 in the Sakagan Chippewa community are just about ready to get their second doses. Health Director Jamie Zarda says they've been fortunate to get enough of the Pfizer vaccine to administer doses to all of the health clinic staff as well as tribal elders. It was so exciting for us to be able to get that. Zarda was one of the first to get vaccinated. She said she didn't have any reaction to it other than a sore arm. It had a few you know, slight reactions
0: like enlarged lymph nodes, dizziness, um, but nobody has said that they will not get the
4: second vaccine. Zarda says, by and large, vaccine rollout has gone smoothly within the community. With every dose that's administered, Zarda says the community gets closer to reopening. We are very restricted right now. During the pandemic, the Sacaga and Chippewa community has kept the Mole Casino closed. It's also restricted access to the Senex convenience store and gas station. They're all measures taken to try and prevent the spread of the virus.
0: You know, with the Native American community, it can wipe out the community. So we really need and want everybody in the community
4: or as many as possible to get vaccinated. So we can open up and kind of get back to a regular lifestyle. Zarda says the goal is to get 80% of the population vaccinated. She encourages everyone who is able to get the vaccine. If you're hesitant, Zarda recommends reading up on it from reliable sources. The vaccine is safer than um, getting the COVID itself. I'm Katie Thorson. And
6: I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
1: National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska is on the line. The Republican was one of those in the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday when rioters attacked. When Congress reconvened, Sass gave a speech saying, quote, lies have consequences. Said the attack on the Capitol was the inevitable and ugly outcome of the president's addiction to constantly stoking division. And then SAS voted to affirm the election results. Senator, welcome back to the program.
8: Thanks for having me on, Steve.
3: What did this week's events say about the state of democracy?
8: Well, we're not we're not very healthy right now, um, but I, I want us to be sure we focus on the fact that uh, we're, we're going to get healthy again. But obviously, um, Americans are angry right now, and, and our country's mourning. I and mean, particularly, I guess we we should start by acknowledging uh, the death of after Officer Sick, the Sicknick overnight and uh, grieve with his his family, and obviously also with the families of the other four who've already died. The loss of life um, is is gut wrenching. But on on Wednesday, the the people's capital, which is the the greatest symbol of freedom and liberty and representative self-government anywhere in the world, all all over the world, there's polling that shows when people think about freedom, they, they see the dome of the U.S. Capitol in their head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was ransacked by a mob that was incited by the president of the United States. That's, that's not a healthy situation.
3: Uh, I want to ask about one of your colleagues, one of a number who voted to object to the obvious election results, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. He was the first senator to say that he would join the objections. He raised his fist to the mob before they stormed the building. He continued his objections afterward and said, if I can paraphrase, listen, I'm just raising some concerns about ballot security. Is there any doubt, though, that your colleague knew what he was inciting?
8: Well, let's begin uh, by laying the blame first and foremost on those who actually committed the acts of violence at the Capitol and then on the president of the United States as well, because he was the one um, pouring gasoline on these fires of division. Um, But a a big part of the problem with our polarized politics at this moment is that there's a massive demand for it. This isn't just a supply problem. We have a big chunk of voters. They're not a majority, um, but they're really loud and they're growing. There is a large group that is hopped up on, on rage clicks, and they're demanding nonsense stunts like the objection to the Electoral College vote. So uh, Senator Hawley was doing something that was really dumbass, and I have been clear about that in public and in private uh, since long before he announced that he was going to do this. This was a stunt. It was a terrible, terrible idea, and you you don't lie to the American people, and that's what's been going on. The the American people have been lied to, um, chiefly by Donald Trump, and lies have consequences. And those consequences are now found in, in five dead Americans in a Capitol building that's in shambles. Um, and there's, there's a lot of work that has to be done to rebuild. And legislators uh, should not be aiding and abetting uh, those kinds of lies. Uh,
3: David Humphreys, who's a Missouri businessman who spent $2 million to support Hawley's election in 2018, now tells the Missouri Independent that Hawley is, quote, a political opportunist willing to subvert the Constitution. And he specifically has an idea he would like the Senate to censure Senator Hawley, which would take a simple majority vote. Would you vote for that?
8: I I heard uh, late last night that uh, Mr. Humphreys had made this recommendation, and I have not been shy in my criticisms of of Josh Hawley, um, either in public or in private. This was a terrible, terrible idea. The mechanism of how the Senate handles it next is something that we'll obviously need to talk about. Um, But the most fundamental issue uh, for any individual senator is uh, their conscience to their oath of office to the Constitution and their relationship with the citizens of the state that they serve. Uh, So Missourians are the most important people uh, in that conversation. But um, obviously, I think lots of deliberation needs to be had on the perverse incentives inside um, our Article I branch right now. The way people raise funds, the way they raise money um, during legislative debates is disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um, Fundamentally, this goes back to the demand side problem. We have, again, I want to be clear, it is a minority of America, but we have somewhere between... Between four and fourteen percent of Americans who are identifying their political tribe as their most important community, and it's not a community of love; it's just their anti-communities. They're Let communities me just stop you, you for one
3: second, there, Senator. Yep. I, we could have a long discussion here, but but you, you you mentioned fundraising. Hawley sent out a fundraising message on the day of the storming of the Capitol, shortly before, it, according to the Kansas City Star. But but you, 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 the question about censure: Should the Senate be disciplining its own members? for doing this sort of thing?
8: Uh, I think we need to... change rules that allow people to be fundraising while the Senate is in session. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of term limits. I don't think the idea of constantly trying to get these feedback loops and make politics the center of kind of horse race, uh, rage addiction, social media stuff, I don't think any of that is healthy. So the, the fundraising is gross. Um, I, I, I want to ban cameras in committee rooms, not, not audio. I want the American people to have transparency, but I want to end the constant grandstanding uh, that drives so much of our politics at present. And so I, I want this kind of gross uh, stuff, this kind of, these kinds of fundraising stunts uh, to be ended.
3: I want to ask about the President of the United States and what happens to him now. I know there's talk of uh, urging the 25th Amendment. We haven't heard that Vice President Pence is a fan of that. There is talk in the House of impeachment, which would take a while. And we had Jay Johnson on this program, the former Homeland Security Secretary uh, earlier today, who told Noel King simply that he thought the best option was for people around the President to urge him to leave town. Go to Mar-a-Lago, delegate authority, the Chief of Staff, the Vice President or somebody, just stop working. Uh, What would you have the president do in the final 12 days of his term?
8: Yeah, I I think that the the less the president does over the next 12 days, the better. Uh, you mentioned delegating responsibilities during this period uh, to the vice president um, in the midst of all of the pain and ugliness of the present. Uh, it is worth us pausing and affirming the fact that Mike Pence uh, acted as a patriot through this. Mike Pence fulfilled his obligations on Wednesday um, while blood was being shed uh, at the people's capital. um the president was actively rage tweeting against his vice president because the vice president was fulfilling his oath of office uh, to the Constitution to affirm the fact that Joe Biden won because Joe Biden won and the Congress's duty was to count and announce that Joe Biden had won. Uh, we, were, we were in the Senate chamber and the Secret Service had to rush in and grab the vice president from the dais and rush him out of the room and the president of the United States was rage tweeting against him at the same time. So frankly I think it's obvious uh, that the president's conduct wasn't merely reckless and destructive. It was a flagrant dereliction of his duty to uphold and defend the Constitution. And we need to know more about why the National Guard wasn't deployed when calls were sent up for it.
3: Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much, sir.
8: Thank you, Steve.
0: Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary.
9: Humans have got to get a whole lot smarter, says Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of Tesla Automobiles and CEO of SpaceX Rockets. Musk is not merely reacting to humanity's recent tendency to elect lunatics to lead our countries. Rather, he's trying to warn us about the rapid rise of a radical new technology, artificial intelligence. In common parlance, he's referring to robots, but these are not the clunky, somewhat cute machines performing rote tasks. AI essentially has evolved to become an electronic brain, a web of ever more complex supercomputers interacting as one cognitive unit that can program itself, make decisions, and act independently of the humans who are creating them. These thinking machines are rapidly increasing in number and geometrically advancing their IQ, prompting Musk and others to view AI technologies in apocalyptic terms. As algorithms and systems inevitably grow more sophisticated, he says, digital intelligence will exceed biological intelligence by a substantial margin. In graphic terms, Musk warns that profiteering humans are, quote, summoning the devil by creating a new superior species of beings that will end up dominating humanity, becoming, quote, an immortal dictator from which we would never escape. What's weird is not his dystopian prognosis. Other experts confirm that runaway bot intelligence is a real threat, but his solution. The way for us human beings to compete with AI, says Musk, is to merge with it. Not a corporate transaction, but a literal merger. Surgically implant AI devices in human brains with, quote, a bunch of tiny wires that would fuse people with superintelligence. This is Jim Hightower saying... Hmm, it's good to have technological geniuses alert us to looming dangers, but maybe the larger community of humanists ought to lead the search for answers. What do the corporate powers from Wall Street to Walmart have in common? They hate the Hightower Lowdown. You can see why at www.hightowerlowdown.org.
0: That's our newscast for this evening. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to kvmr.org where you can listen on demand. Coming up next, we bring you WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions and the KVMR News Team, I'm Charlotte Peterson wishing you a fabulous evening.